0: Well, Billy, we didn't do the, uh, the weekly fist bump on the way up from the stage and back from the stage, but um, so if that has anything to do with a, a, a good sermon delivered, then uh, that's on you, brother. Uh, I'm teasing, but um, I want to chase a quick rabbit in relation to what uh, Billy shared about uh, folks who are temporarily taken from us by Jesus, those who, who pass away and go into glory, um, how many of you received presents yesterday? Okay. How many of you got everything you asked for? <laughs> All right. We got a few brave folks to say, you know, uh, you know, that if they actually ask for things, we almost feel like it's, you know, selfish to even ask or something like that, unless you're a child. But, um Um, But I I say all that just to say that uh, we we received a lot of treasures yesterday, um, you know, wrapped in packages and, you know, had a great time and, you know, kids trying to fool their parents into thinking it's 8 a.m., but it was actually 4 a.m. and and, and those types of things. But um, um, all of those treasures will one day be in the trash heaps. You understand, you know, uh, due to lack of interest or, uh, you know, as I like to say, the shiny has rubbed off of them. And that sort of thing. Well, in 1 Peter, um, uh, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Um, You know, Sue um, Cutter and others who have passed this past week are standing before treasures, and the shiny will never rub off of those, and uh, that is a that is a precious, precious uh, gift from God and a precious promise we can cling to, and the rabbit is now in the cage, and uh, let's uh, let's proceed with our message this morning. Um, so there are uh, many things about my senior pastor. I'm going to pick on Troy for just a second. There are many things about my senior pastor that make him unique to any other senior pastor I've had in the past. Um, Yes, he he knew about this, buddy, if you're asking him. Did you know about this? Um, um, First of all, up to this point, I have always been younger than my senior pastor. (laughs) Not so at Rocky, right, Junior? Yeah, yeah, I, I am older than Troy, uh you know uh and uh, so so there's that secondly uh his nickname should be hikes alot hamilton okay hikes Lot hamilton so uh so troy you know eats adventure for uh breakfast lunch and dinner and uh, i love his one motto he says you know never turn down an adventure and uh you know uh, i have a a little notes file in my notes on my phone where it just titled quotes, and if something just kind of grabs me and inspires me or whatever, then, uh, then I write that down. And when he said that, I was like, oh, I can write that down. So that's great. Uh, finally, and this is kind of in relation to our message this morning, he speaks of Jesus, but when he speaks of Jesus, he often uses the term hero. I've never had a senior pastor that said, Jesus, our hero, you know, at least on a consistent basis, maybe they've said it once or twice, but Troy regularly calls Jesus our hero. And he mainly does this because everybody imitates their heroes. Jesus, as the ultimate hero, is the one we are to be ultimately imitating. But why is Jesus a hero? Well, to, to use a general definition of a hero, we can say that a hero is is someone who does something out of the ordinary or something no one else can do, and they do it generally for the benefit of others. Jesus is definitely a hero by this definition. As we walk through our passage this morning, and, and this morning, you know, you can tell it was a large chunk of Scripture, and it was a lot like an onion. So if you're looking at your notes, you're seeing, you know, 1A, B, C, 2A, B, C, and that sort of thing. Trust me, that's the short version of, of what could possibly have come out of this text because there is a lot. But as we walk through our passage this morning, we will see that Jesus did something that was both out of the ordinary and impossible for anyone else to do. And it was very much for the benefit of others as we... Many of us in this room can can say and, and experience, or have experienced. So let's look this morning, kind of at what uh, what Christ did that the law could not accomplish, or what Christ did that the law could not do. So point number one is the law is a reminder, not a redeemer. Okay, so the law is a reminder, not a redeemer. And what I mean by that, basically, is that the law, all that the law has is only a shadow. All that the law has is a shadow. Now, maybe you've kind of seen the, the old scary movie where a person is kind of hiding from the bad guy, and, and all of a sudden they see the bad guy's shadow. You know, maybe, maybe they hear the bad guy's footsteps, but the, the approaching shadow is a reminder to this innocent person that something bad is about to happen to them. Not to mention, you know, the music kind of kicks up a notch and, you know, and the violins are playing in a shrieking sound and that sort of thing. But this person sees this approaching shadow and they start to tremble and they start to shake and they start to tuck in and that sort of thing. Well, the shadow is a reminder that, that somebody is casting that shadow, so that word shadow basically just kind of means a, a foreshadowing. It's kind of the, 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 the shadow that is part of the full and perfect image of someone. But what kind of shadow does the law cast, and, and how does that shadow remind us of, of things? Well, we see there in verse 1 that it says that this shadow is a shadow of good things. So, what he says there, he says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things. What what kind of good things are we talking about? What does this shadow show us that is good? Well, first of all, letter number A is this the law is a reminder that we are broken, we are imperfect, we're sinners. So, the law is a reminder that we are broken, we are imperfect, we are sinners the reason for the entire kind of sacrificial system in the, in the Jewish religion was people were not perfect. That's the, the whole reason. There may be other reasons, you know, pointing to worship of God and, and that sort of thing, pointing, of course, to this future Christ, but it was built and established on the fact that people were not perfect. Verse 1 says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never By the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. That word make perfect means someone who is incomplete. So you have to make them complete. You have to make them whole. It's kind of the Greek word for just wholeness. So to say that humanity is not perfect in a lot of ways is really an understatement. And it's often kind of used as a dodge for calling the problem what it is. So, for instance, if a person is confronted for their sin, they may say, I know I'm not perfect. And what that basically means is, leave me alone. It's kind of a dodge for for actually calling things for what they are. Really, that person should be saying something like, forgive me for sinning against you. So, according to the Bible, in the creation of mankind, just kind of give you a, a, a history of sin entering the world and how wonderful sin is. Tongue-in-cheek, in In the creation of mankind, Adam and Eve were created perfect, we know that, but they rebelled against God's only rule for what not to do when God said, don't eat the fruit. And because they sinned against God, they cursed the world and every person born after them, every person born after them was born in sin. That's why Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All means all in that verse. But to continue to talk about what sin does to a person, the Scripture says that we are rebels against God. In fact, in Romans 5.10, it calls us enemies of God. Romans 8.22 says, all of creation groans. Can you imagine that? Just kind of a, all of creation groans, longing to be set free from the curse of sin. James 4.1 points out that our sin is the source for all our quarrels. You say, no, 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 I'm sorry. I'm married, you don't understand how difficult my spouse is, blah, 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 blah. They are the reason for our quarrels. Or, you know, da, 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 no, no, the Bible says, from whence come these quarrels among you? Is it not because of the desires in your heart? Your sinful desires cause you to have marital spats. Sinful desire, according to Galatians 5, is the cause of things like sexual immorality, impurity idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, on and on and on. It goes on into this list. And according to Romans 6.23, the guaranteed result for committing sin will always be death. Sin is incredibly offensive to a holy God. Romans 1, Proverbs 16.5, verse after verse if a person remains in their sin, then according to John 3:36, the wrath of God remains on them. And if not dealt with properly, sin will seal a person's eternal fate under God's righteous judgment. 2 Thessalonians 1:8 and 9. So being not perfect is a very serious issue. And you might be saying, this doesn't sound very much like good news. You know, is this really a shadow of a, a good thing? Because you're, you're kind of, you know, destroying the, the afterglow of Christmas right now, Pastor Bill. Kind of canceling out my Christmas warm fuzzies, as they say. But it is, it is a very good thing. And here's why this is good. It is a very good thing to know what the problem actually is rather than to make excuses for it or false conclusions about it. So often in our culture, instead of calling sin what it is, we call it things like issues. We call it things like disorders. We call it things like addictions, or, or we are victims of circumstance. And misdiagnosing our sin condition with anything from that list or any kind of list that we have out there is not only deadly in this life, but is eternally destructive, I mean, none of us, if if we had cancer, would want to go to a doctor, and the doctor says, it's just a sniffle. Take some Tylenol flu, and you'll be okay. So it is a very good thing that the law reminds us that we are sinners in desperate need of saving. The second good thing is this, letter number B. The law is a reminder that redemption and forgiveness of sin is not possible through animals' blood. The law is a reminder that redemption and the forgiveness of sin is not possible through animals' blood. Now remember that one of the dilemmas in the book of Hebrews is that some of the Jewish Christians were kind of considering going back to the sacrificial system as their method of being right with God. They wanted to go back to temple sacrifice and those kinds of things And, uh, you know, that's not good. In fact, our, our mystery man, in a lot of ways, is reminding them that this would be a very bad decision. So why is this a bad decision? Well, first of all, a shadow has no bite. So verse 1, you know, says that all the law has is this shadow of these good things to come. And so since the law has a shadow and not the real deal, or as verse 1 says, the true form, it can only operate like an actual shadow. And, you know, Peter Pan's shadow aside, a shadow cannot do anything but portray the silhouette of the person casting the shadow. A shadow can't pick up anything. A shadow can't make decisions. A shadow has no oomph to give to any situation. A shadow has no bite. And so the the sacrificial system was like a shadow in its effectiveness to permanently forgive sin and redeem a person. I mean, notice verse 1, it says, it can never make perfect those who draw near. That word never literally means not once. And it's kind of the idea of not even a chance. So the law will never, ever, ever be able to redeem or perfect a person. And this would be very good news if, if you were considering, you know, well, you know, this Jesus thing's all right, but we have tradition, we have the law, we have, you know, culture, we have, we have these kinds of things. And so if you were wanting to go back to that particular thing, trusting in a sacrifice that is incapable of doing what you are wishing it to do, then you're stuck. Now, we're probably the, you know, most of us in this room are probably not Jewish. And so we probably don't face a a regular temptation to go back to some temple sacrificial system or anything like that. But we have our own little miniature sacrifices, don't we? I'll try harder. I'll read my Bible more. All this or all that. See, the, the hoops that you jump through in the sacrificial system are a lot like the hoops that we jump through Sometimes. So let's not think, you know, oh, he's talking about the Jewish culture and that sort of thing. This really doesn't apply. No, it's, it's kind of like going down a road that looks pleasant at first, but it is disastrous in, in the end. You know, here's our, our mystery man who has full knowledge of that road, and, and he kind of maybe runs into some Jewish believers who want to stroll towards destruction, and he's warning them. He says, You know, maybe, maybe those folks say, uh, But look at this road, it's beautiful. Our culture's wrapped up in this, this is tradition, you know, that sort of thing. And, and the mystery man says, Don't get swept up in the false beauties of things that have no bite. Your traditions are but a shadow, and you're being swept away by those shadows. This road will have a bitter end when you discover that the the hoops you jumped through did nothing about the wrath of God concerning your sin. Don't go back to the sacrificial system. And so, those are very, very good things that the shadow reminds us of. Point number two, the repetitive nature of the sacrificial system proves the law could not permanently redeem. That's a mouthful. The repetitive nature of the sacrificial system proves the law could not permanently redeem. And now our passage makes kind of the logical conclusion that if animal sacrifice thoroughly cleansed people from their sin, then why haven't the sacrifices stopped? Verse 2, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. What the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that if a person is truly cleansed from sin by the sacrifice of a lamb, let's say on the Day of Atonement, okay, they they bring this spotless lamb to the Day of Atonement to be sacrificed for their sin, then there would be no need to come back to the altar the next year. Another sacrifice would do nothing for a person who is conscious or aware that their sins are forgiven. Which is why verse 3 kind of hooks up that thought and it says, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. Now if, and I say if because I, I looked all over the place, if they actually cleansed the Holy of Holies. There's a possibility they did and there's a possibility they didn't. So let's just assume, maybe wrongly, if you have more information, share with me after the service. But let's just assume they didn't. If they never cleaned the Holy of Holies, can you imagine the high priest every year going into the Holy of Holies and just seeing the caked-on blood that had accumulated year after year after year? And that that black, caked-on blood was a, was a testimony to the legacy of the law. It was, it was the message that mankind will never be able to escape his sin. And so verse 4, and even verse 11, complete this thought and affirm the message that mankind can't escape his sin, though through animal sacrifice, when verse 4 says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That word impossible literally means not able. It's kind of like, I want to, but I can't. The law may want to pardon sin. It can't. It had no ability to take away sins. And then verse 11 goes on, makes it a little more personal when it's talking about the priest himself. And it says, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, and here again, which can never take away sins. So the law was meant To remind and not redeem. Here's the better news. Praise God, there is a Redeemer. So, point number two is Jesus is the Redeemer. So from verse 5 to the end of our passage, we're going to kind of see that that Jesus is anything but a shadow. He is the true form of these realities, as it says in verse 1. He is someone with bite, someone with oomph, someone who has made decisions, someone who is moving and acting with all power. He is the real deal. So how do we see Jesus, our hero, as the one who did what the law could not do? How do we see Jesus, our hero, as someone who did the impossible to redeem those who would be redeemed? Well, first of all, letter number A is this. We see that God's purpose for Christ coming into the world would be that He be the Redeemer. Verses 5 through 7 are a quote from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, where David basically writes, "'In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear.'" Burnt offering and sin uh, sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Just on a side note, you might notice that verse 6 says an open ear. And our text has changed that a little bit to, you have prepared for me a body. Well, an open ear in Hebrew literally means ears you have dug for me, which is kind of ooh. but that's what that means, and it's, you know, it's kind of pointing to the idea that something physical, a physical body is being created. So the, the writer of Hebrews, our mystery man, has taken that passage and has tweaked it a little bit, but has kept the context, has kept the idea, you know, that, that the ears are something that were being created, so you have prepared a body for me is kind of the same concept. Because sometimes we see differences in Scripture and we're like, that's it, I'm done. Just dig a little deeper. So in this psalm, David is, a, is affirming that God desires faithful lives rather than the performance of rituals. But the psalm also prophesies of, of one who will come, this, this one who will do the will of God, a person who has a body prepared for them by God and who has the law of God in their heart. This person who would come, according to our passage this morning, is who? It's Jesus. So verse 5, consequently, when Christ came into the world, there it is, Christ came into the world. He said, a body have you prepared for me. He said, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. He said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Christ is the one who came and did not perform ritual sacrifices, but did the will of God according to the scroll of the book. So letter number B. The will of God that Christ came to do was to establish a new covenant. Now, if you have an understanding of covenant, you're kind of like, whoa. Whoa wait a minute, covenants are really big deals. You, you have the, you know, the Noahic covenant with Noah, you have the Abrahamic covenant, you have the, the, the Mosaic covenant. You have these other covenants, and they were major shifts, especially in the history of the lives of the Israelites and that sort of thing. It's kind of a big deal. Did Jesus really, I mean, did he really come to establish a new covenant? Well, let's find out according to our passage so point number one, just to kind of establish yes, he did, is this. Starting in verse eight, we see that not, uh, excuse me, one of the things Christ did, according to the will of God, was he removed the old covenant. That's powerful. That is a powerful thing. Verse 8, it says, When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. So these are sacrifices and burnt offerings that were offered according to the law. There's, there's that Mosaic covenant, the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the The second. That does away with literally means to abolish something. And it's in the present tense, which basically means as long as someone is in present time, the thing that is abolished is abolished. So it's not something that happened in the past, but it's kind of come back later or anything like that. It is always in present time, Christ has done away with the sacrificial system. In doing the will of God by being the Redeemer, Jesus abolished the sacrificial system, for all time. But he didn't leave us hanging. Point number two is, in doing the will of God, Christ established a new covenant. So in verse 9 it says, He, Christ, does away with the first in order to establish the second. In order for for the purpose of... So we know that Jesus didn't come in to kind of remove something that wasn't working. He removed it in order to establish something that would work. We know that the thing removed or abolished, of course, as we said before, was the sacrificial system. But what is this second new covenant that Christ has established? I want to point out two things, and then we're going to land the plane. Number one is this. The covenant that Christ established is a covenant that says we will become like Christ. Now, here we have to make the connection with that Psalm 40 quote into our passage here. So, notice one of the qualities of this man who will come to do God's will, according to Psalm 40, verse 8, is, you know, one of the qualities about this man is that the law of God will be within his heart. Okay, it will no longer be a kind of an external book kind of situation, but they will, you know, it will be internalized. The Holy Spirit will be reminding them of these things and be working in that person with the Word. Now look at verses 15 through 17 in our text this morning. It says, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them, on their minds. Then he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So follow the logic here. If if the man that was to come was to have God's law on his heart, and if the man to come was Jesus, and he was that man, and the new covenant he establishes was was going to put the law of God in the hearts of those in the new covenant, then this is a covenant that will make us like Christ. So Christ comes, He has the law of God in His heart, He establishes His covenant, and one of the after effects of this covenant is it puts the law of God into those people's hearts who trust in Christ. That is a wonderful, wonderful, precious thing. We who are under this new covenant are not under some sort of system of rules and regulations and laws and everything like that. We're called to be like Him. We're called to imitate a person. Point number two. It is a covenant that will never be abolished. though it is crazy thinking borderline heretical i guess it's possible for a person to think well if these other you know covenants were abolished or faded away in time who's to say that this who's to say that this new covenant established by christ might be abolished or will dissolve over time again crazy thinking but 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 the answer to who's to say this new covenant could be abolished is the Word of God says that this covenant will never be abolished. How so? And we'll wrap it up with these last two points. Point number A, this covenant is established on the shed blood and death of Jesus. There's a vast difference between a spotless animal and the Son of God. Verse 11 and 12, it says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. And then verse 12, but when Christ, I love the, the but gods or the but Christ, you know, kind of, you know, verses, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, for sins The sacrifice that Christ offered was not another animal. it was himself. Now remember, the, the law was a foreshadowing of someone to come, and, and in the law, a person was to offer a spotless lamb to the priest as an atoning sacrifice for sin. Jesus was that someone to come and in, in excuse me, in that he was that spotless lamb. What does John the Baptist say when he first sees Jesus? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the one who came once for all in his sacrifice to forgive sins. We understand this and we know this, but this is an amazing thought. I love how, I'm going to chase a rabbit for just a second. Um, I love how Christ is called our propitiation. You know, it's a you know, $10 word that basically just means atoning sacrifice or a, a sacrifice that satisfies the wrath, generally, of a, of a deity or of God. And, and the beautiful thing about that is, in a lot of ways, the, the Ark of the Covenant, the lid on the Ark of the Covenant was called, you know, they had the mercy seat, or sometimes it was called the propitiation. And so, once a year here, the high priest comes in on the Day of Atonement, and he pours the Lamb's blood on the mercy seat, and it absolves the people of their deliberate sins committed in a year's time. Kind of like a car warranty or something. You know, and and so it kind of absolves people of their sins committed in, in, in a one year's time. Yet, here's Christ who, as our high priest, comes into the Holy of Holies, and He does not pour a Lamb's blood on the Holy of Holies or the propitiation, but He pours His own perfect blood on, you know, he sheds his own perfect blood on himself, and he is the mercy seat. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is the one who satisfies the wrath of God. So, point number B, I think. Yes. This covenant abolishes its enemies, not vice versa. The enemy of the sacrificial system has always been sin. And the sacrificial system was incapable of solving or defeating that enemy. But we are part of a covenant that takes care of its enemies. No matter how much a person would long to to be delivered from sin, if if they trusted in the sacrificial system, sin would win every time. But if they trust in Christ, sin and any other enemy will lose every time. How do we know this? Look at verses 12 and 13. It says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Isn't it strange that when you have enemies, especially enemies like sin, enemies like wickedness, enemies like the devil, enemies like the demonic hordes that are in the world today, that sort of thing, that you're sitting? I mean, Jesus is not up and fighting. Jesus is not strategizing. He's not in his war room. He's sitting. It's almost as if Jesus' enemies are a non-issue to him. And that's exactly the point. Because of, of his sacrifice, because of his bringing in the new covenant, all of the enemies of Christ will one day be his ottoman. He has a throne, he's sitting in that throne, and one day he's going to have an ottoman for his feet. So the the new covenant kind of gives us the future hope that one day all enemies of Christ will be abolished. But we have to ask this question, what about our day-to-day? I mean, right now, Bill, you've been talking about cosmic stuff. The devil, sin, that sort of thing, you know, and all those things will one day be under his footstool, and that is very good news, and that is great to know, and that is great to know that, that by God's grace and because of his shed blood, I'm going to be on that team. That is, that is wonderful news, but, but what about our day-to-day? I mean, there's, there's no doubt that this future hope does much for the now. Okay, so, so we go home this afternoon… And your wife or husband walks by something and is reminded of something you didn't do, why didn't you do, 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 and through gritted teeth and, and starts to, you know, those those sinful desires inside of you, you know, just kind of you know, and you just kind of get angry and you start to kind of fuss. This never happens to anyone in this room, but um, you know, uh, you know, there's just that 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 marriage argument that happens over whatever. You can, and, and you should, say, man, the thing that's got me all riled up right now, it's going to be under Jesus' feet. It shouldn't be as huge as it is in my heart right now. So, so there is no doubt that this future hope or this future, you know, thing that's going to happen does much for the now, but, you know, and, and, and we will win some battles, no doubt about that, but, but uh, you know, there are times when we don't. We can still struggle with sin, and, and some of those struggles, really, I mean, honestly, I mean, I wasn't making light of things when I say that we change the name of sin to things like addiction and, and those types of things. Those are real issues. Those are real struggles. So, so some of those struggles make us feel powerless, defeated, and potentially ready to throw in the towel. And, and, and although it's, it's glorious to see that one day all the enemies of Christ will be under His feet, you know, what about the daily enemies His people face through sin? Well, the answer is in verse 14. Verse 14, for by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. For by a single offering, that is the death of Christ, he has perfected. He has completed. He has fully cleansed from sin. And, and here is the clincher. For all time, settled in the mind of God from all eternity is the fact that you are forgiven. You go home this afternoon, your wife says this, or your husband says this, and you turn around and... That ph- is forgiven because of this one-time sacrifice for sins that Christ did. That ph- as hideous as it is and as many consequences and repercussions that are come from such things, has been in the mind of God eternally settled as cleansed. And then it goes on to say, those who are being sanctified, in other words, those who have not arrived but are in the process of being made holy. And so to wrap this up and kind of tie this in to the Christmas season, I've got a quote from Charles Spurgeon. There had been no peace on earth since Adam fell, but now... When the newborn king made his appearance, the swaddling uh, bad, with, with, I guess bad means child, um, with which he was wrapped up, no, excuse me, the swaddling cloth with which he was wrapped up was the white flag of peace. That manger was the place where the treaty was signed, whereby warfare should be stopped between man's conscience and himself. And man's conscience and his God. I don't think the swaddling cloths were literally a white flag of peace. I think they were just what they had on hand. And they were a, a great little way of telling the shepherds, hey, we found the right one. But I do believe that at the manger, the treaty was signed. And that we, anyone, anyone here, anyone outside of here, anyone in this world can trust in Christ in such a way that warfare will be stopped between your conscience and God. And even better, your conscience and yourself. This, folks, is our hero. This is the one who did the impossible, that we who are forgiven of all sin might imitate him with all of our might. I pray that we will be those type of people today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be challenged by your word, and I pray, Lord, that we will be challenged Lord, if there's someone here who does struggle with persistent sin, Lord, in the quietness of their home by themselves, they find their minds or even their their actions or their words drifting towards this thing that constantly pecks and pecks and pecks away at their hope and trust in you. God, I pray for them right now that they will find great great and precious promises this morning that that you have established a covenant with us, Lord. You have not just made some promise or anything like that. This is a covenant that you have established with us that if we place our hope and trust in you, that settled in your mind because of what Christ has done, we are right with you. We are forgiven. We have been cleansed. We have been made whole. And so I pray, oh God, that that will not only give us great peace and, and joy and humility if, we, if and when we give in to sin. But I pray, Lord, it would also give us great confidence in our fight against sin so that we might overcome sin, be it by your grace and your power. Lord, help us not to, to go that, down the, the initial, initially beautiful road of self-reliance Lord, may we not trust in, in, in the, the sacrificial lambs that we offer before you to somehow think that we are pleasing to you. That, that we can somehow, as, as the uh, old saying goes, live for you on Sunday, but live for the devil every other day. And somehow feel like we've escaped your wrath. Lord, help us to never go back to that thinking again, but Lord, when we sin, or if we sin, Lord, may we understand that that is forgiven only by your grace, and may that stir up in us a joy, a freedom, a confidence, a a worship of you as our hero and as our Lord and Savior. So, Lord, as we leave here this morning, may every single one of us be able to rejoice in our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe for some, they can't because they don't know you. I pray that they will confess their sin and repent and turn from sin and place their trust in you and find forgiveness of sins. But for those of us who do know you, may you just light a new rejoicing and refreshing feeling in our hearts over these truths this morning. And I pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.